We're going to be in Esther chapter 7. So if you have your Bible, go ahead, pull that out. That is where we'll be today. Um, if I haven't met you, my name's Granger. I'm the college pastor here. And um, yeah, I'm excited to, to be with us this morning and to open up God's Word with you. Uh, recently, just getting back, my family and I, we went back home to Arkansas where we're from, did a little trip and um, introduced the new baby to the family and kind of spent some time in the South. And, um, but we're ready to be back and excited. I was not ready for the heat, um, to be honest with you guys. You kind of forget a little bit about it, but when it's like 115, like every day straight, I came back, my garden was dead, my yard was dead, and I was like, oh, that's right, okay, I forgot where I lived. Um, but despite the heat, it was good, and we're excited to be back, but most importantly with you, church. Um, and so today we're going to pick up um, in Esther chapter 7, and uh, really we're kind of starting to get to this point where we're wrapping down. Uh, the end of the book of Esther. We're wrapping up the end of the book of Esther. And some of us, what's been cool about the book of Esther is we've been walking through it. There's been, you know, several different preachers that have gotten up here and really dove into the book. And it's kind of been funny because we didn't like all sit down and get together and say, okay, how are we going to do this? But um, we kind of all have just stuck with this cinematic theme of the book of Esther. And it's kind of played out really well um, and doing that. And so we're going to kind of continue on with that. This is like the episode before the final episode, which we'll tackle next week um, as we dive into it. And I like that because I'm a big moviegoer. I love, like, there's nothing better than sitting down in a movie theater with a big old thing of popcorn, a large Diet Coke, and just like chilling. It is my thing. I haven't done it in about two years, just me and my wife, because we've had kids. My kid is two years old. And uh, we got a little break and went to go do it, and we're sitting in the theater. Uh, this was about two months ago. We're sitting in the theater, and literally, we get like a little buzz on the phone that says, it's time for you to go to the hospital, and we had our second kid. The movie had just started. Like, we just got through the previews, and I was like, are you kidding me? Like, kids ruin everything. Greatest gift on earth. <laughs> Greatest gift on earth. But the one thing I love, sitting in the movies, and they stole it from me, um, but I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade a movie for my kid. I wouldn't do that. Um, but I would like to see a movie again. Anyways, um, but I'm a big, you know, after I put the kids down for bed and we do all that routine, I love to just sit, sit on the couch with my wife and we just put on a show on Hulu or Netflix or whatever it is. Um, how many of y'all are like that? Like you love a good streaming series? Anybody out there? That's right. Okay. I know it's most of you because it's like a billion dollar industry. So don't sit there and lie and be like, oh, I don't like it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. All right. Um, you just sit there and read books. Good for you. Um, anyways, sorry, I'm, I've been out a little bit, so I'm coming back a little fiery. Um, but what I love is when I'm streaming a series and we're watching it, um, I really, I've kind of gotten spoiled because I hate a series that like, well, I got to wait another week to watch that episode. I can't just watch it right now again, um, which is probably healthier for me because then I don't stay up till midnight watching something. But I love, um... It is hard for me because I'll get the next weekend and be like, wait, what happened last week? So any of those shows that are out there that they like give you a little update or a recap before they go into it, like they're the true heroes. I love them. Um, if a show opens up and it's like, previously on Lost, you know, and it like gives you the whole spiel, like I'm like, thank you. Like you gave me the recap I needed. Here we go. So that's what I'm going to do for you right now because we're getting into like the big climatic moment of the book of Esther. It's like all about to come to this moment right here in chapter seven and eight. 
And so I'm going to hit you with a little bit of a previously on Esther to fill you in. So you've got Mordecai. And Mordecai is the cousin of Esther. And he has got some schoolyard beef, beef going on with a guy named Haman. And Haman is second in command for the king, King Xerxes. And so Mordecai, he's this devoted Jew, and he's got beef with Haman because Haman was walking by one day, and Mordecai, being a religious Jew, refused, like disobeyed the law to bow down to Haman. And so Haman, that hit his ego hard, and he's like, that's a no-fly zone. Like his pride took it straight, took a shot straight to the heart. He's like, that's not going to work. So he was out to get Mordecai. And not just Mordecai, he went home, he brewed on it, he steamed on it, and he was like, I'm going to take out all the Jews. Like, I'm taking out Mordecai and anyone that knows him and any Jews, in period, um, just to prove his point. And so Haman, being second in command, he goes to the king and he's like, hey, be crafty and sly here. King, there's this certain people group that are refusing to obey your laws. Like, we need to abolish them. We need to destroy them. And the king's like, okay, you're my second in command. I trust you. So yeah, go for it, do it. Didn't really ask a lot of questions, kind of that blind faith. Gave him his ring to seal it with his official seal in his name. And um, so this decree goes out, out there and they sign this decree and send it out and it's to abolish all of the Jews um, and to destroy the Jews they come across. So this gets sent out and obviously Mordecai being a Jew is like, oh my gosh, okay, what are we going to do? So he goes to Esther, who's the queen, and Esther and Mordecai are talking, and Mordecai kind of gives her the famous line kind of of the book of Esther, of like, Esther, you've got to do something. There's this decree that's gone out. It's gone out against all of the Jews, and like just because the, you're the queen doesn't mean your life's not in danger too. Like it's against all Jews. And so he's like, Esther, maybe God has put you here for such a time as this, like for you to stand up, Maybe you've been put into this royal position for such a time as this to stand up, to speak out, and to save the Jews. And so um, I feel like it's in that moment, like we're in the movie moment where if you watch any type of like big action movie or anything like that, normally like the bad guy gets a little victory, just a real small one, and all the, like the, the heroes and everybody, they're down, and they're like all come together, and they get this big like brainstorming strategy. They start getting all their weapons and gears, like preparing for the big battle. I kind of feel like that's what um, Esther and Mordecai are doing in this moment. They're getting it all together. So then they begin to execute this plan, which Pastor Emery did an incredible job last Sunday of really taking us through what that looked like, of how Esther had to risk everything to go even into the presence of the king and to talk to him. And she goes into the presence of the king, risking everything. And in doing so, he, he grants her favor and she says, hey, I would like to go, I'd have a banquet, join me at a banquet, you and Haman. And so they go to this banquet and it's at this banquet that the king asked again, like, Esther, what, what do you want? Like, why do you come to my presence? Like, what is the request you have for me? And Esther's like, ah, the only thing I want from you is to go to an, come to another banquet with Haman tomorrow night. And so it's in this moment that I feel like if I was Haman, I'd start to get a little fishy. But he's so caught up in his own ego and all that sort of stuff that like, it just, it's not even registering to him. But, but like, I'm a married man. And so like women are crafty, all right? And I feel like they're always up to something. We have this little statement in our house um, 
that, that I kind of like to say, and I don't even, my wife said it once and I've just taken and learned, I don't even know where it came from. Actually, somebody in the last service told me it came from a book. I never read it as a kid. But we have this statement of, if you give a mouse a cookie. And if you've ever read the book, you got one up on me. But I know what that statement means and I know it's not good, okay? That's all I know. Because I feel like what happens for us, something we love to do on the side is like we like to remodel our home we're living in. We like to buy a home, remodel it, and then turn around and like flip it kind of thing. Um, We're like the knockoff version of a Chip and Joanna, you know, like wannabes. Um, And um, so that's kind of what what we like to do for fun. It's It's our weekend stuff. But it always goes in this way where, you know, my wife will come to me like, babe, I've got a great idea. And I'm like, oh gosh, okay. Um, and it's like, okay, it'll be super easy. It's not a big deal. It's super simple. Like, what if we just put this little wallpaper up here and like we could just, it'll change the whole room. And I'm like, okay, let's get to it. Lo and behold, before I know, like it started with just putting this little wallpaper up, but now I've got to rip the wall completely down, strip it down to the studs. I'm putting up new drywall. I've got to replaster the whole thing. And it was like, this little thing of like, oh, it'll be easy and simple. And like we say, you give a mouse a cookie and like it's always, it's way bigger than you ever thought. Like here it is, this was supposed to be a little like three hour project. I'm four weeks into it. The house is covered in dust and it's like, okay. So that's why I get a little, I'm like, I don't, you say it's just gonna be a little something, but I don't really, it always leads to more. And so I feel like Haman in this moment should have been like a little bit like, Esther, what are you up? you just going to invite us to two banquets back to back? Like, there's nothing there. Um, but he's clearly clueless. And that's where we pick up in chapter 7 of Esther. And so chapter 7, verse 1, it picks up and it says, So the king and Haman went into the feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine at the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what you request, even up to half my kingdom... It shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if I please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold and I and my people to be destroyed and to be killed and to be annihilated. At this moment, you got to think, I don't know the seating chart, but my imagination's going. And I'm like, the king is the head, like, Queen Esther's here probably, and then probably Haman's right here. And like, as she's saying this, Haman's gotta be like freaking out a little bit. Like, oh, wait. Cause he's just now finding out for the first time, Esther's a Jew. And he put out this decree, kind of sly trickery, against, kind of approved by the king, but not really to kill off all the Jews. And so Esther is in this moment, basically like airing out all of his dirty laundry right there in front of the king. Um, but she says to the king, like, we're, our people are out to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. And she's like, listen, if we had just been sold merely as slaves, like, I wouldn't waste the king's time. Like, it's, it's not worth your time. But the issue is, like, he's out to kill us all. It's not just like we're being sold off into slavery. It's literally he wants to destroy us and wipe us from the face of the earth. And so the king said to Queen Esther, he said, who is he and where is he? Who has dared to do this? And Esther's sitting there and she's like, gotcha, in this moment, right? And so Esther said, a foe, an enemy, the wicked man Haman. I'm sure she like pointed to him, like it's like the whole table like stops, like the fork drops and it's just like dead silent, right? Like the whole place is just crickets and everyone's looking at Haman's like, oh crap, 
like completely busted. Like he thought he was being sly. Like, you know, his parents went out of town and he was like, oh, I'm just going to have a few people over. No one will know. We'll clean up the next day. Lo and behold, he forgot there was a Ring doorbell app. And here he is, like parents are showing up, like what's going on here? And he's just caught red-handed. Not that anyone in this room has ever experienced that because we're all perfect angels. So anyways, um, but he's caught red-handed. It said that the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the place, went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. Clearly, right? So not only the fact that like he manipulated the king and now is finding out, like the king just found out, wait, you used me to issue a decree to kill my wife? That's a no-fly zone. But on top of that, it says he was a little tipsy. Like the, you know, the, the wine he'd been drinking didn't help at all. So he's hot. He goes out to the garden. And in this time, it was also illegal or against the law or whatever for any man to be with the queen outside of the king's presence. So the fact that he, the king, got up and went into the garden and Haman stayed there is already like a no-no. But I get it if I'm Haman, right? Like you ever been in trouble by your parents and they're sitting there and it's like you know they're mad at you and you know they're upset and like they steam off and they like go into the other room. Like you're not about to, you don't just follow them like this, or I didn't at least. I'm like, all right, I'm gonna give you some time. I'll let you air out a little bit. We can revisit this later. It was just a, a little dent in the car, you know, wasn't a big deal. Like you're not just like, hey, what's wrong? Like, you wanna talk about it? Like, no, it's better to just kind of let it air out. And so Haman does that. But in this moment, he goes and he goes to Esther and he starts to beg for his life. He's like, Esther, like, please, like, spare me and he's and Esther's um, sitting there she's eating and so he's he's begging for her life and it's at that moment um, that the king comes back in and so as if he was already in the uh-oh zone comes back and it says that the king said will he even assault the queen in my presence and in my own house as the word left the mouth of the king they covered Haman's face so already he was in hot water definitely getting grounded now it comes back, game over. The king comes back in and he sees Esther, or he sees Haman there begging at Esther and he's like, now he's assaulting my wife? Like, dude, you're in a lose-lose situation here. So he's really trying to beg for his life, but the king sees it as assaulting his wife. And so they throw this bag over his head and they drag him out. Um, it's really important in this moment to understand even too kind of what's going on for what's about to take ne- place next. Like I said, Haman was so out to get Mordecai that he even had the guards and the people that worked for him build this stake outside of his own home. And he, his goal was not only am I going to wipe out the Jews, but I'm going to make an example out of Mordecai that you don't cross me, that you don't come against me. And so he had them build this stake and he's like, I am going to hang Haman on this stake. And lo and behold, it's about to come back to him. It says, verse 9, then Harbona, one of the eunuchs of the attendants, in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they, hang, so they hanged him, Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai, and the wrath of the king abated. So, Morde- so Haman's out there literally 
trying to get at Mordecai. He's doing all of this evil. He's going and fighting all of this stuff up against him. And he's literally living out what the psalmist says in Psalm 7. It says that, Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. So he's digging this pit, he's making this hole, but he falls into his own hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull, his violence descends. What a story for Haman. That literally he's out with all these evil mischief plans, scheming against it. That his pride, his ego got him so much that he builds these gallows. And actually, like, to be honest, it, it, they didn't have a word that really translated from the Hebrew Greek to English. And so we say hangs, but it was actually impaled him on that stake. So he was impaled on the stake, hanging out now in front of his own house, crucified for everyone to see. What he intended for Mordecai and for God's people, he is now, their own wrath of that is being lavished upon him. But there's two sides of this story. And I can only imagine being Mordecai in this moment. If you look at the story of Mordecai and what has been going on, I mean, he hears about this decree that's gone out, that he should be, that his people should be wiped out, that they should be destroyed, abolished, and annihilated. And immediately he strips into strips his clothes off gets in sackcloth and runs to the prison gate and just begins to fast and to pray and to seek God to see God as his provider as his protector and just calls on the name of the Lord so much so that it says that Esther has a servant go out and try to bring him clothes and he's like no 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 like I'm keeping on he refuses them keeps on his sackcloth and just seeks the Lord through prayer and fasting so I almost picture this in this moment that Mordecai is out at the prison, outside of the palace, out at the gates, and he all of us, he's just praying, and God, would you just fight for me? God, would you be my pr- protector? God, would you just abolish my enemies? God, would you be for me? And in this moment, as he's just fasting and he's praying, all of a sudden, these guards are dragging this man off, and he probably, his head was covered, but I'm thinking he may have been like, wait, that looked like Haman's clothes. What? Was that Haman? And like probably got up and followed him and realized that, man, the thing that he probably walked past daily, the thing that he saw, I mean, it was 50 cubits high. The thing that he saw that, man, that is my death. That is what's destined for me, for being bold in my faith, for staying true to the word of God, to only honoring and serving and bowing down to God. Like that is set for me because I was obedient. And now here he is watching Haman. I'm assuming it doesn't say that, but I'm picturing it with it, right? Watching Haman being dragged out to die in that place of him, what was destined and meant for him. It's like that song we just sang. It says, and though I stand the enemy all around, I will not fear, I'm standing on holy ground. Here comes the king of glory. Imagine him just sitting there like seeing him drag down and be like, here comes the king of glory, our God so strong and mighty. Just having this moment of praise But I think if we're honest, if I'm honest with myself, I envy the faith of Mordecai because I don't know if that would have been my first response. I think if I would have had that bold statement of faith and just being honest with you of like, okay, here we go. Like I'm gonna be bold. And then all of a sudden, like this second in command to the king is like out to get me. He's a headhunter. 
I probably would have been like, yo, I'm gonna get my family and we out. And like, I mean, if you look at it and you go back into the Bible, honestly, that's the same thing David did. Saul was out to kill David and David ran. He went to the mountains and hid. But Mordecai was the one who did it right. See, God had to go to David and say, David, why are you, why are you hiding? And God had to reveal his power to him. But Mordecai immediately went to God as his provider, as his protector and sought the Lord. It was like, despite my enemies being around me, literally, he's at the palace gates. His, the number two in command of the king, his enemies, despite them being around him everywhere, I mean, he is putting his faith in Christ. He's putting his faith in God as his protector. But I often think that we, we do the opposite, like I said. I mean, what would it look like if we had that kind of faith? If we had that kind of surrender? Because I think we're often quick when, when hardship comes or when trouble comes, we immediately try to take it into our own hands. We immediately try to, try to grab it up and be like, okay, well, I can fix that. I know you're there, God, and I know, I know you're watching, but if you'll just stay on the sideline, I'll try to handle this situation. Maybe it's within business, maybe it's within raising kids or at school or at work or, or whatever it is, family issues. But I think when just trials and tribulations come up, it's so easy for us to all of a sudden be like, well, let me just try to figure it out first, God. And, and if it really gets bad enough, then, then I'll call on you, then I need you. But no, Mordecai's response was immediately, he was going straight to the Lord. God, you are my protector and you called me to step out in obedience. I've done it and here I am. I love what God says or what Moses says to the people of the Israelites. They, they fled their enemies and they're standing at, at the Red Sea and they're waiting for it to, to be parted. They don't know that it's going to be and they're seeing the enemies come down and chase them and they start yelling at Moses like, Moses, are you kidding me? You brought us here to die. What are you doing? And this is one of my favorite verses, a couple verses in the Bible because it says, Moses answered the people and he said, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. Church, what would it look like if instead of always being on the run, we simply just sat still in the presence of God? We sought him as our provider, as our protector the truth is, I don't know what you're walking through today and I don't know what is going on, but if you're running, stop running. Would you set in the presence of the Lord? Would you just be still and seek him as your protector? As a God who is for you, who is there in the presence of your enemies? Would you just surrender that situation over to him, whatever it is, and see what he will do with it? I love how this story continues in chapter eight. Because we serve such a God who it feels like he always goes above and beyond. Like there's, there's like the bare minimum and God like just, that's not even on his table, I feel like. God could have just wiped out Haman and it was like, okay, God, that was good, thank you. But I believe God not only wiped out Haman, but I believe he also rewarded the obedience of Mordecai. Look at what happens. It says in verse eight, on that day, King Assyrus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king for Esther had told what he was to her. 
And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Not only did God protect Mordecai from Haman, but now imagine this, Mordecai just gets placed in the number two position, gets the king's signet ring, and now he's probably going back to his house, his new house, which was Haman's house. Haman's impaled up there on this post and he's like walking in like, dang God, really all of this? Like, ooh, God, you good. This is a king size bed. This is lush. Okay, God. Like, you didn't have to do that, but you did. You know what I'm saying? Like, I mean, literally, all it took was Mordecai stepping out in obedience, and God, not just, not only was he his protector, but he was also his provider. But the truth of the matter is, there's still this decree out. Haman, the enemy, like he was dead. He was done. He was defeated. But there's still a decree that was out against the Jewish people. And and it says in verses 8, it says that, that for an edict written in the name of the king is sealed and the king's ring cannot, is sealed with the king's ring and it cannot be revoked. So the fact that the edict that went out, the decree went out against the Jews to annihilate them and abolish them, like the king just can't go back and be like, hey, let's, let's erase that one. Let's forget it. No, it was sealed with the king's ring. There's no revoking that. So Esther again goes to the king and is like, it says in verse three that she spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet, wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman, the plot that he had devised against the Jews. And then in doing so, he held out his golden scepter. He granted her her life again. Because even for her to go and make a request to the king was putting her life in danger. But he did, and that's where we jump to verse 7, that it says, Behold, the king says, that Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him in the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king, and seal with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be removed. So it says that they... The king basically says, what he's saying there is, okay, you can write a new decree. I'm not saying I can't get rid of that one, but what you can go and do is you can write this new decree. So all of the king's scribes, they were all summoned. They all got together at the time and they wrote this new decree that gives the Jewish people the right to fight back against their enemies. Now they no longer had to hide and fear the fact that they were Jews. They no longer had to be under this attack. And like they could now fight back. They were armed. And look at what happens. They got together, they wrote this new decree and they put it together, they sealed it with the king's ring and it says in verse 13 that a copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province being publicly displayed to all people and the Jews were ready to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. I love verse 14. So the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service rode out hurriedly urged by the king's command. Can you imagine what the Jews was like in this moment? All of a sudden hiding, living in fear of being this Jew, knowing that like, man, there's someone out to get me and I can't do anything about it. And now this new decree has gone out and it says, not only did they go, it said they were swift about it. It was not like the king was like, hey, can you, can you do this? And just whenever you get a chance, can you take care of this? No, it was like, hey, this is top priority. You need to get this message out now. 
that you no longer have to live under that old decree. You can now live under this new decree that you can fight back against your enemies, that there is a different way of life for you. So how does this apply to us? As we begin to close, the band comes up and we look at this story. The truth is that God's hand is all over the book of Esther. It may not say his name, but gosh, does it show his power, his might, and his glory. God's sovereignty through the book of Esther really is simply a foreshadow of what he would eventually fulfill and accomplish through his son, Jesus. See, the truth is that even today for every single one of us, there is still a royal decree out there against us. Ezekiel 18.4 says, the soul who sins shall die. And Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. Just like the Jews in this time of Esther, are we today with this decree that because of our sins, and the Bible says we've all sinned, we've all fallen short of it. There's no doubt about it that every person in this room has sinned. And because of that, and because of the decree that went out from a holy God, we deserve death. But God didn't leave us in that. He solved the problem. He made a way. Through his son, sending his son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins, he fulfilled the old law and rewrote it to a new one, saying that now, because Jesus defeated death on the cross, he paid the penalty of death for our sins, we now can walk in freedom under this new law of Jesus, under this new way in life through only through the Son, now we can have access to God to walk in freedom. And what I, what I love about that one is just, again, what that does for us. But I think at times when, when we talk about that, that gospel message, the saving message for us, I'm puzzled because when you look at the book of Esther, it says that when they got their new decree, man, they were after it. It says that they were on swift horses, that they got the fastest horses they could because they needed to get the message out to all the people that, hey, you can fight back. You no longer have to live under the bondage of that old decree. Listen, church, today, you no longer have to live in the bondage of sin. But believers who, who have already accepted Christ as their Lord and Savior, why are we not on swift horses carrying that message out? Why are we still letting those around us live under this old law that has destined them to death, being bound by the enemy in the shame and the guilt of their sin? When there's a new decree, that through what Jesus did, and putting our trust and our faith in him, now we have power from the Holy Spirit and we can fight against sin. We can experience freedom in Christ and we no longer have to live with the bondage and the weight of sin. So what would it look like? Oftentimes I think the church, when it comes to this message, we don't jump on swift horses. We might find a donkey, but most of the time we're walking. Listen, there are neighbors. There's family. There are people you work with, your coworkers, your employees. 
who live every day with the guilt of sin, who live every day under the bondage and the chains of sin and brokenness. And here we are with this new decree saying, you don't have to live as a prisoner anymore. That the enemy is already dead, he has been defeated, but not just that, but death was defeated and God rose again and issued a new decree. All you have to do is put your faith and your trust in him. And church, I believe if we had that kind of urgency with that gospel message, that if we went with this urgency of, I mean, we, we've got to tell everybody, we've got to help let people know that they no longer have to just take it on the chin from sin, but they can fight back, that they can be armed by, by the power of the Holy Spirit. They can put on the armor of God and they can fight back against sin through God's strength. Listen, here's what I think could take place in your business in your school, in your community, in your family. The same thing that took place in God's word in the story of Esther. It says that and in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and the edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves as Jews. That listen, when they carried it out with this, when, when this new decree of freedom came out, they didn't just keep it to themselves, but they declared it everywhere. They were in the streets saying, hey, we don't have to do this anymore. And the fact that God revealed his might, his power and his glory in such a way, it says that people around them who weren't even Jews were like, yo, sign me up, I'm a Jew now. They were on board. They were like, I don't know what kind of God this is, but whoever he is, I want to serve him. Imagine the testimony of Mordecai going from this death sentence on his life to now second in command. The truth is we have that same. We have a death sentence on every single one of our lives from the wages of our sin. The truth is though we're guilty and we deserve it. And instead of the criminal Haman being placed on it, God sent his one and only perfect son, Jesus, to die in our place, the innocent. The Bible says that all you have to do is confess with your mouth and believe in your heart and you will be saved. But if you do that, I believe that God's going to change everything about you. And I believe that this urgency should come over you that as you begin to walk and you begin to know who God is and you begin to learn about the might and the power of this God, you know, part of what he says he gives us is he says he gives us his sword, which is the word of God. That you can go to God and you can even go to his word and say, oh my gosh, look at the way that God stood up for Mordecai. Surely will he not fight for me in the same way. See, that's what helped convert all these people over to being Jews is they saw the power and the strength and the testimony of what God had done. See, it wasn't about who Mordecai was, but it was about God had done in Mordecai's life. Church, what would it look like if we just got passionate about sharing our testimony? Not about of who we are, how good we are. The truth is, even if we're saved by grace, we're all still wretched sinners. Our testimony is about God's strength and power in our lives that he would save and redeem and love a sinner like us. 
So I don't know where you're at in this room today. I don't know what battles you're facing. But the first group of people that, man, maybe you're just like Mordecai and you feel like your enemies are everywhere. I would either tell you or just remind you to stop running. Just surrender it over to Jesus. Just put it down. All you need to do is be still and seek the King. That He is for you. That you can trust Him. That He is your provider. That it says, the Word of God says that He will be there for you. That He will lead you by still waters. That He will restore your soul. All you got to do is surrender back over to Him. Stop trying to fix it on your own. You need only to be still in the presence of the Lord. I believe there's a second group of people in here and you've already fallen under that new decree. You've put your faith and trust in Jesus. Now you just need to live a life with urgency to take that message and to share it with everyone. I get it. It's not easy, I get it, it's scary. You would think, oh, well, Granger, you're a pastor, you should be great at it. No, like, even me, I get nervous, like, oh, crap, what are they gonna think? What's someone gonna say? Man, are my neighbors, are they gonna write me off if I tell them I'm a pastor? But the truth is, I need to care more about their salvation than what they think about me. But listen, church, it's... It takes prayer. It takes getting on your knees before the Lord saying, God, would you just give me the power and the strength? God, you're, maybe you're like, I, I want to share my testimony. I want to share, but I don't even know what to say. Listen, that's perfect. That's okay. Go to God. He will tell you what to say. While I gave Esther tons of credit for being conniving and crafting and thinking of a way to do it, I fully believe though that God was leading her every step of the way. It may have been in that moment that she was like, okay, I'm at this first banquet. I'm just going to ask him now. I'm going to ask for it now. And God may have been like, no, 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 ask him to a second banquet. I don't know. But I know that the word of God says that we have within us the Holy Spirit that will intercede on our behalf. That all you have to do is call upon the name of the Lord and that he will be there and he will equip you. So maybe your start, the start of you being bold and courageous and running on swift horses to share your faith is simply just getting on your knees and asking God for strength, asking God for the words to say, for the power to just surrender under him and to watch what he does. But lastly, maybe there's a third group of you in here today. Maybe you're still just caught up under the old decree and you're living in the weight and the guilt and the bondage of sin and shame. I've said it and I will say it again, you do not have to live that way. It's as simple as it gets. John 3, 16, that God loved the world so much that he sent his son, his one and only son, to die on the cross that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. All you have to do is stop running and just surrender. Because of our sin, we deserve death what I love about Romans 3 is it shows who the character of God is because it talks about God and it says that yes 
because God issued this decree, because sin has separated us from God, he can't just go back and be like, oh, you know what? I'm okay with sin now. No, he is a just God. He can't just say, it's, it's gonna be okay now. That decree cannot be removed. But because of that, he sent his son Jesus to fulfill that law and to establish something new that we can now through the son of God have relationship with him. And here's what it says, Romans 3, 26, it says, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith. Wow. What a God that he says true to his word, but that he loves you so much that he is a justifier that we may have a way to have relationship with him. All you gotta do is put your faith in him.